Hi everyone. Today it's uh, just me, Andy, with a sort of short bonus episode of Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, the three of us have talked about doing a few small things in addition to the weekly episodes that we've been recording. So, so far, a few of, a few of us have written some posts on our Substack that you can find there. Um, and we've also talked about perhaps scheduling um, one, one-on-one interviews with friends or with people we know uh, who work on topics that are falling, that fall within our individual interests. So for instance, Jay earlier this spring interviewed his friend Max Kim, who's a journalist in Seoul, to talk about contact tracing in South Korea. Um, so in that spirit, uh, this week I recorded an interview on Tuesday night in the United States, June 23rd, which was Wednesday morning in East Asia in Taiwan. Uh, where my guest Brian Hugh is located. Brian is a journalist who started the website New Blue Magazine, um, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And the premise of the interview uh, will be you know, explained in a second. The last thing I want to say is that if you like uh, this interview, if you like the content we've been producing, if you dislike any of it, we'd like to hear any feedback, comments, questions from any of our listeners. Uh, you can find us on Twitter uh, with the handle at TTSGpod, or uh, uh, by email, time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Okay, so on to the interview. Time to say goodbye. Brian, thanks for, thanks for uh, coming to talk with us today. Thanks for having me. It's great talking. So I wanted to talk to Brian because an article dropped uh, Monday morning in the US, and um, I guess that would be Monday night in Taiwan, right? where where Brian is based Um, and it's ostensibly it's about a topic that you know if you're like online and in certain circles you're very familiar with this phenomenon but I'm sure many of you are probably going to listen to this and think you know what the hell is this I've never heard of this before so we're going to try to address the concerns of all people of varying degrees of familiarity of this phenomenon that Brian writes about uh, which he calls left diasporic Chinese nationalism, which is perhaps almost too formal of a title, what most of us um, have kind of colloquially come to know over the last year as tankies, right? And we'll talk about the name uh, in a moment. What what is a tanky and where does the term come from? Um, But it's uh, this basic phenomenon of kind of um, standing for the Chinese Communist Party and calling it a leftist position and kind of denouncing Hong Kong, uh, pro-Hong Kong, and perhaps concerns about human rights in Xinjiang and Taiwan, um, denouncing all of these as sort of pro-United States imperialist, you know, CIA-funded positions. And I think the one thing that we can all agree upon is, you know, depending on whatever degree or no matter what degree uh, familiarity you have with this phenomenon, it's been very confusing, right? It just kind of has emerged over the past year or so, I think, Brian has done kind of a bit of a service for all of us by digging into it and writing up a, a good um, exposition of all of that. Before we start that topic, though, I want to kind of briefly talk about or ask Brian to introduce himself and his publication. Uh, the website is, is it newbloommagazine.net or do you want to give us? Uh, New Bloom Mag, so N-E-W-B-L-O-O-M-M-A-G.net. Okay, so newbloombank.net. It's a very in my opinion, an excellent English language and also increasingly Chinese language, uh, bilingual analysis of Taiwan, but also East Asia politics more broadly. Um, I don't know, Brian, do you want to kind of uh, let our listeners know who, what, what exactly inspired you to do this and 
what is, mm -hmm. I guess, what is your calling card? Why are you different than any other publication? Mm -hmm. um, so New Bloom started in 2014 after the Sunflower Movement in Taiwan. Um, at that point, I was in Taiwan and I was a participant in the movement along with another, a bunch of uh, other activists. And so we were looking for ways to kind of connect social movements in Taiwan uh, with the international world to build solidarity across international social movements on a leveling basis. And so that necessarily meant building a kind of bilingual publication. Um, and our members originally mostly split between the people in Taipei that were active on the ground in the movement, uh, which involved the month-long occupation of the Taiwanese legislature in a protest of a free trade agreement that was to be signed with China. Um, they were either on the ground there in Taipei or they were in New York or on the U.S. East Coast or other places and looking for ways to connect with what was going on on the ground. And so we had a kind of base which was in some sense diasporic, uh, but also that just were just people here in Taiwan. And I think another one of our political engines was to actually kind of push for left-wing ideas in the movement. And so we were among people that thought of ourselves among the left-wing of the movement. And so for us, that means, meant uh, arguing, for example, a position that defends Taiwan's sovereignty or uh, asserts political independence that is not on a right-wing basis, not on depending on state actors, but on building international solidarity. And so that's kind of why we felt the need to do, do this. And it's been like six years since then. Um, we're coming up on our sixth anniversary next month. Um, and so we've kind of just, uh, you know, we also do, for example, uh, reading groups, uh, panel events, uh, kind of salon style parties. We're trying to expand to audio and visual. Um, we also have occasional print versions of the magazine. And so that's where we are kind of six years later. Um, but we kind of view ourselves as similar to projects such as the Laosan Collective, um, which came out of the last year's protests in Hong Kong. Um, in that we are also partially diasporic, but also in that we're among people I think of ourselves among the left wing of the movement, trying to articulate left wing perspectives. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned the idea that you're di diasporic. What, just for listeners, um, to get a better sense of you, and you, you can disclose as little or as much as you want. How did you wind up in um, Taiwan um, in the first place? Yeah, and so where, I spent- where are you from? Uh -huh. Yeah, so I grew up in New York, and so I spent 20 years in New York, and I was looking for ways to kind of work on my language skills, uh, particularly reading and writing, uh, when I graduated college. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll just go to Taiwan. And I thought I would do that. And so uh, I went to Taiwan, I began to kind of seek out what was left wing there and, and local movements and that kind of thing. Um, which is probably what I would do anywhere, to be honest. Um, but it was very interesting connecting in that way. And so I think, um, and so a lot of our members are like that. And so we have people that are diasporic or Taiwanese or et cetera. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting that we do have this kind of basis. It's interesting that I think with particularly social movements, you know, you do have kind of responses from diasporic communities yeah. um, as well as people so, on the ground. So uh, what is your family's relationship to Taiwan? Mm -hmm. um, so that maybe delves into some of Taiwan's uh, complicated history. Like my sure, parents yeah. are, uh, you know, often thought of as mainlanders, uh, people that came at the KMT to Taiwan after the KMT's defeat in the Chinese Civil War. Mm -hmm. um, Taiwan has, uh, for example, among the Han groups, the sub-ethnic groups, the major ones, are Weishin and Benchen. Uh, Weishin yeah. are mainlanders, people that came at the KMT to Taiwan. And they constitute around 10% of the population, and uh, mainland uh, Benchen are people that came before the mainlanders came to Taiwan. Uh, from the earlier waves of migration in the past hundred years. And there's also an indigenous population of around 2% um, and so forth. And so my parents would be people that identify with China, for example, but I and I think a lot of other people of my, of my generation uh, in Taiwan do not. Yeah. Um, yeah, so ho you know, hopefully we'll talk about Taiwan a little bit more um, when, I, when we talk about the big picture. Mm. I do want to get to the article. Uh, mm. And just two quick uh, little promotions, I would say. In terms of things I've learned from New Bloom, the first is actually the first time I talked to Brian was 
in 2016, after Trump gets elected, you know, everything is disoriented. And he accepts a phone call from the president of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, and, uh, you know, the United States establishment freaks out uh, because you're not supposed to talk to Taiwan. But they're not really sure why you're not supposed to talk to Taiwan, right? People in America have very short memories about East Asia. And I thought Brian wrote a really clear um, analysis of the situation. So um, I thought, you know, for, for those in the United States kind of wondering about that kind of stuff, I think New Bloom offers, um, that's a real service that New Bloom offers. And uh, secondly, I would say he has a very funny review of the Netflix film, Tiger Tail. And that's all I'll say about that. But if you look it up and if you've seen the film, uh, look, up, look for that review. But let's talk about the article. So the article comes out on Monday. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but something about diasporic Chinese nationalism. It's on the front page of New Bloom still. Why did you deem it necessary to write this piece? And in the piece you mentioned that it's not just you, but um, your team, as it were. You kind of went through a bunch of tweets, um, a specific you know, Twitter account, I guess, if, if you want to introduce them. Why did yeah. you find it necessary to write this piece and how did you land upon this approach? Yeah, and so we went through as a group, um, just, you know, coming through uh, the Xiao Collective's tweets um, and their articles. They're only like, maybe hey, like... For, for listeners who don't know Mandarin, what, how do you spell that? Uh, Q-I-A-O. Yeah, collective. Um, yeah, Chow yeah. Collective. And so the Chow Collective, they would be view, we would view them as, as tankies, um, you know, diasporic, primarily diasporic, uh, uh, kind of Chinese left nationalists. And so we felt a need to respond to the emergence of this collective over the past year and their kind of assertion of the view that China is a kind of socialist, utopic, uh, workers' paradise. And so we went through all their, their tweets, um, which, because I think they are mostly become known through their Twitter presence. Uh, what they post on Facebook, um, their webinars, and their articles. And there's only about like maybe eight articles on their website right now. Um, and so it's actually one of those things that I feel like in other contexts, I might have responded sooner to it, but I was concerned about uh, giving them more airtime, in fact, by actually kind of criticizing or critiquing them in the yeah. way, because I felt there was actually sometimes not a lot to grab onto. Uh, but mm -hmm. I do think that actually, particularly in a time of worsening U.S.-China tensions, uh, there are many people among the Chinese diaspora particularly that end up gravitating towards uh, a form of Chinese nationalism, kind of statist, yeah. diasporic Chinese nationalism. Uh, what's actually interesting is that this is very different from uh, Chinese nationalism from Chinese people in China, mm -hmm. um, which is configured along different lines because it is very diasporic. It's very much right. shaped by the conditions in the U.S. of worsening xenophobia, um, you know, and also just the increased politicization of a lot of people, that people are becoming more politically radical and being pushed to the left. And so searching for responses to that, sometimes what they end up uh, gravitating towards is this kind of tanky thought uh, this yeah. idealization of China. And so that is yeah. something that worries me. And I think particularly in the past few years, um, with the kind of rightward lurch of the US and also increased polarization of people to the radical left, um, I do encounter much more Asian American tankies. That is something that concerns me. And yeah. so we talked about it as a group and you know, there's been kind of debate about how to respond to Tiao for a while. And we decided maybe the best thing to do is just go directly after them. I yeah. think New Bloom does have a tendency to have polemics, uh, particularly among people that are, are Chinese nationalists. You know, sometimes actually, Diasporic, but also in Taiwan among the kind of pro-unification left, yeah. um, which is pro-unification with China, or uh, regarding kind of contemporary Chinese left nationalists and so forth. And so I think that continues that kind of tradition in some sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is, you know, this is something we've talked about on the show before that um, there's a, especially with Trump as president, right? It's, there's a real um, obvious uh, attract, attractive tendency, political tendency for people in the U.S. and around the world to say, like, the United States, uh, basically has a messed up government, what they do around mm -hmm. the world, 
um, we want to denounce it. And so you look for comfortable alternatives and perhaps easy stories that if the United States is bad, then the enemy well, the enemy is our friend, right? And therefore, a lot of people wind up, I think a lot of people wind up defending China almost out of, uh, not because they know really much about it, but just because they think, you know, if it's almost like Cuba, right? Like if the United States demonizes this place, it must, this place must actually be good. And this is yeah. how we can get back at the U.S., Right. It's very interesting because this is uh, actually a very Western-centric notion. It's very uh, centers the U.S. as the kind of only right. prime, the prime actor in the world. That right. therefore, whatever is bad, that whatever the U.S. government says is bad, must therefore be good. Right. And so, you know, there's not actually taking China on its own terms and evaluating its own terms. Right. It's still actually juxtaposed to the U.S. Yeah, yeah, and that's something you, you definitely hit on in the article, the sort of bizarro Orientalism, which I do want to talk about. But before we get to the the Chow Collective, which how how old do you think they are at this point? Um, it's been a year, uh, I guess, maybe. Um, oh, it's been a year already? A year. Yeah, I'm wow. not really sure, but it's actually, they, they retooled an existing account. It was originally kind of an account called Serve the People ADA, and so it actually okay. just began with one person's account. Okay. Uh, so it depends on how you measure it. And also, just at this point, a lot of, not a lot of their members have come out to the public. And yeah. They are very anonymous. And do they actually exist? That's even a question for me. Yeah. And so it's actually, it's kind of funny that, you know, I'm responding to this group that actually hasn't uh, revealed any of its members really in any public yeah. way, whereas, you know, a lot of the interlocutors of this group are people that are already in the public eye. And so yeah. it's, it's, it's very strange that way. Yeah, I've only been aware of them, I think, for like a month. So maybe, I mean, this gives you a sense. Like, I'm not, like uh-huh. I said, if you're in particular corners of the internet and social media, you're <laughs> inundated with this. I try to keep my distance uh-huh. from it. But like I said, it's also become kind of unavoidable and insufferable mm-hmm. um, if you're kind of anywhere tangentially uh, close to Asia. So before the, the, the So before we kind of hone in on that account, and we don't want to like... You know, fetishize it and make them the entire story, but they're just sort of like this, you know, this kind of case study yeah. in the article. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This phenomenon, I think you say in the article, dates back to would you say it starts with a Hong Kong protest, which break out last May and June in 2019? Do, is that? Um, um, in part to do with, with Hong Kong specifically, you know, the, this kind of notion that the CIA is behind Hong Kong and that this is a color revolution intended to, uh, to overthrow China or to make trouble for China. Um, mm-hmm. This kind of really, there's a spike in this kind of belief around when the protests in Hong Kong started last year because of all the international attention on Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. But these kind of accusations have been following social movements in Hong Kong and Taiwan or regarding, let's say, Tibet or Xinjiang for years and years and years. Okay. Um, but I think particularly the phenomenon of Asian diaspora becoming uh, politically radicalized as tankies maybe is more tied to the Trump administration, um, mm-hmm. the rise of the Trump administration in the past four years. Um, just, yeah. And I think, I think it just... Um, I think part of it's because of the, the increase in, in China, in tensions with China, um, uh, the exactly. rhetoric of the Trump administration with uh, China. And so I think yeah. people are, are kind of responding to that in some sense. Right. And I mean, even to that extent, it is kind of a understandable response. In response to xenophobia, uh, you do yeah. look for something to kind of grab onto to, to find foundations. Um, I yeah. think for maybe a lot of people that are in the diaspora, this actually leaves them questioning their identity, for example. That yeah. they grew up maybe the most of their lives in America, or their entire lives in America. And now America has suddenly become this incredibly hostile place towards them. Right. And so yeah. seeking a national identity, they, they end up in the, this kind of idealization of uh, ostensibly socialist regimes, uh, nominally socialist regimes, which are actually just quite authoritarian. Yeah, I mean, this is something I want to talk about eventually, but I do think that this is, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to like do this podcast just to dunk on this group or just to dunk on uh, tanky. Yeah. Like that happens yeah. every day. I actually kind of think it might be useful to think about, um, is there a, a conciliatory are there grounds for conciliation or sympathy? Obviously, you know, if there's just, there's, they're obviously just like internet trolls 
um, as there are with yeah. all these tendencies, you can just ignore and block those people, right? But I do think that, um, you know, something I do want to talk about later is, is there enough in common with them? Um, the, the continuum to use this word left, and, you know, that's the word that you just used to describe your own project, is that completely, um, is there an actual intersection? Is there an actual grounds to kind of have a dialogue with these people or perhaps, perhaps there isn't. But, um, so before we get into that though, let's, you know, like kind of work through the actual yeah. thing itself. So you are, you open the article by saying that this diasporic Chinese nationalism, this is just a quote from the article. The diasporic Chinese nationalism offers very little that is new. Instead reiterating an old set of ideas that has persist, persisted for decades among tankies. That is leftists who look, who back authoritarian regimes in the belief that they present an alternative to Western capitalist nations, right? So let's get into this term tanky. Where does it come from? What are the precedents for this? Yeah, yeah. And so it goes back to the existence of the Soviet Union and the suppression of the uh, Hungarian Revolution of 1956. And so this is a term for the people that cheered on the tanks and that were rolling over the students instead of signing with the people's movement. And this is then come to be used as a term uh, broadly applicable to, to leftists or, or self-claimed leftists that then back authoritarian regimes that have pushed down popular movements um, in the claim that these are a socialist regime and therefore this violence is justified. And so this is a, it's very interesting because it's, it's very, I think, actually historically specific as a phenomenon. Um, mm. It follows certainly tr certain tropes. And one of the tropes I discussed in the article is just, for example, claiming that a socialist or communist regime is superior to the West on the basis of uh, productivity, for example, that just it can outproduce the West yeah. and in terms of like producing goods or manufacturing or things like that. And so like, that's one of the claims and just creating, it claims that, you know, it's creating something new or uh, it's outside of capitalism or that is that, that uh, these nations which are, are uh, anomaly socialists are aligning with each other against the Western dominated world order. Like these are very common claims, I think, and it's been right. going back for decades. You know? Yeah, it seems like this new this new version of tanky merges that sort of old school Maoism with with right. Um, it does, yeah. Um, but I think yeah. No, go on. Uh, but I think what's specific about them is that they are. I mean, the ones I was addressing in this piece are diaspora, and I think that's mm -hmm. kind of an interesting phenomenon. Um, they are oftentimes descended to from or immigrated from or are the diaspora of the country that they idealize. And I think this, that's why this kind of nationalism was interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the other thing I wanted to say. You, you talk about how this is not new because this is like tankies. And I think that's true. The other thing uh, that jumped out to me is, you know, the name uh, Chao Collective comes from this. They say on their own website, it comes from this Chinese term, Hua Chao, which um, for those you know, who don't know Mandarin, that basically could be translated. Hua is the word for Chinese, but not China, but like ethnic Chinese. And mm -hmm. Chao is this term that's really old. Like I did a little bit of research. It's like, you know, it's as old as the Song, and it just means someone who lives in a different land. But then Hua Chao, this term, is a relatively modern invention. Um, uh, so are, are you familiar with the, this category of Hua Chao as a, its history? Yeah, not, well, the history, not specifically, but I do know, for example, that it's interesting that the attitudes in China towards Hua Chao, the so-called overseas Chinese uh, mm -hmm. groups, has changed over time, actually. And, you yeah. know, this kind of uh, ethnic claim regarding, like, oh, we're part of the greater Chinese diaspora, we identify with China and the Chinese state, is interesting to me. I mean, even during, let's say, the Mao period at an early point in time, Hua yeah. would not have been thought of as part of the Chinese community. They'd be thought of as overseas uh, capitalist traders. Mm -hmm. um, even during, you know, various points in throughout Chinese history uh, in the past hundred years and so forth, there have been shifts in, in whether uh, overseas Chinese are included within the definitions of the native state or the kind of proto-nation yeah. state or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's a little ambiguous, but I do kind of think the, so the modern term, and there's a little bit of research I did, 
according to this article, which comes from a very kind of famous historian, Prasenta Dwara, writing in the 90s, is Hua, the term Hua Chao is introduced, is introduced in the late Qing, so 18, 1890s, 1900s, if you don't know Chinese history. Basically, the Qing Empire is the last Chinese empire, or quote-unquote empire in China. They're falling apart, they're a disaster, and people want revolution. So to sort of shore up their political legitimacy, it's the Qing state that kind of comes up with this idea of Hua Chao to um, call upon overseas Chinese, mostly merchant communities, right, in the U.S. and Hawaii and Europe, in Southeast Asia, to um, kind of send money back home to help prop up the empire, which is heavily in debt to the rest of the world, and also that these people have this these legal responsibilities towards China, right, the nation of China, even if they spend their entire life like in San Francisco, right. So that's interesting to me because this, I think this raises the question of is diaspora and Hua Chao, is this category inherently nationalist and conservative, right? And what I thought was interesting was in your, in your sort of introduction of what New Bloom is, you refer to yourself as part of, I guess, the Chinese or the Taiwanese diaspora. Um, and I think, you know, both you and Lao San, which I know you're kind of nominally a part of, and, you know, I've, I, I know several of those people as well, tend to use diaspora as, I don't know if it's a, if you want to call it like a liberatory category or a potentially liberatory category as kind of, you know, transcending the nation state and not being loyal to necessarily any government. Um, mm. Do you think, do you think diaspora can be kind of re reappropriated? Because diaspora, you know, the original meaning is sort of like, the Jewish diaspora, right? And we right. all belong to like the Jewish nation. And so there is a sort of underlying potential underlying nationalism to the category of diaspora itself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's a good segue to talk into kind of independence and why New Bloom positions itself as a pro-independence publication. Because, you know, New Bloom is a publication that is actually, we view ourselves as against the nation state. We are for the abolition of nation states. But nation states are not going to fade away tomorrow. And so, you know, it doesn't seem like a good notion for Taiwan to just assimilate itself to China. And on that extent, I think we also, our advocacy of independence is based on principles of self-determination, uh, hoping people can organize and identify with categories that they believe in. And right. so that's the reason why we support Taiwanese independence, not because of some belief in Taiwanese nationalism versus Chinese nationalism. Mm -hmm. And so in, insofar as the majority of people in Taiwan do identify as China, Taiwanese and not Chinese, that's yeah. our, our basis for supporting independence. Um, but I think the aspect that is an interesting category because of uh, just kind of what you mentioned regarding the nation state, but also the ability to push against the nation state. Um, for example, the diaspora, that notion then of uh, a Chinese diaspora, then no matter who you are, where you are in the world, or maybe how many generations removed, that notion implies that uh, you're connected to China and that maybe you should owe China, the China, Chinese nation state, some loyalty. And this is mm -hmm. kind of the, the discourse advocated by the nation state. Yeah. But then when you think about a context such as the US, for example, uh, then you actually have a kind of competing set of interests. You might have grown up in the US and America. Uh, but then you have this kind of notion of diaspora that claims you should be loyal to China. But as I think US-China tensions show, the, the interests of these two nation states uh, do not align. And so I think this is one way it pushes people to thinking beyond the nation state. And I think for, that's true of, you know, Taiwan and Hong Kong and, and uh, America and so forth that, you know, and, and other places that just sometimes you're tied to two places that the interests don't actually overlap in terms of nation state. And right. so it's a way for pushing beyond the nation state, you know, trying to push for, I think, right. transnational solidarity beyond just this kind of narrow nationalist framework. Right. But then do you think there's still this kind of dangerous temptation in the category of diaspora that we're still ultimately kind of locating ourselves in this thing called Chinese people, even if it's not a nation state? And when you say you want self-determination, um, 
are you saying self-determination for you is something that's not just about having a government it's about you know, yeah i think so yeah so how would you yeah. draw that distinction um i think that yeah it's not about just having a government or it's not about organizing the form of the nation state and so trying to you know think about alternatives to that or to, to advance towards the post nation state uh world order which is hopefully also post scarcity and post class and that kind of thing too <laughs> is probably it's probably what we're, look, we're looking for um but uh, it's, it's also just, yeah, I think it's one of the broader questions, actually, that, that is the question of nationalism. Um, it's even a diasporic framing can actually become reducible to form of nationalism. And that is, I think, what's interesting about, let's say, Tiao or a group like that, and part of why I think I was interested in critiquing them as a symptom of this. Because even diaspora can become this kind of uh, as atavistic nationalism or, or this kind of uh, a very misleading thing. Um, and so I think that's actually worth critiquing, you know, any form of nationalism, uh, Taiwanese, uh, Hong Kong, is it a nation, is it not a nation, I'm not going into right. that, but also right. the of nationalism which, which exists. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's one of the questions that's interesting uh, to push on. And I think yeah. it raises the question of identity, because, yeah. you know, these questions of identity are not going to go away anytime soon. Um, but then how do you avoid falling into this kind of, uh, you know, framework, in which is inherently, I think, exclusionary. Uh, with yeah. the nation state, you are always drawing borders. Uh, with the diaspora, you still are drawing borders as to who's part of it and who's outside of it. Um, but I think what's interesting too is that, particularly regarding attempts to build transnational projects, is that sometimes they actually do deeply internalize nationalist assumptions about the world. I think the left oftentimes talk about internationalism, for example, but as this kind of fixation on uh, China as an alternative to the US, um, sometimes it actually is still very defined by the kind of nationalist framings or these national framings um, regarding the worldview or just how the world order is conceived. Um, yeah. I think it's also interesting that, uh, you know, transnational can become a way for a more expansive form of nationalism. Uh, diaspora is a good example of just having diasporic national that's kind of not just confined to the borders of a nation state, but claim all people are descended from people that were from that nation state. Um, and I think that was also interesting is that oftentimes when you think that you're beyond the nation state, when you claim that you've beyond, moved beyond this towards some kind of transnationalism, you kind of just end up set, setting yourself up into the trap where you just kind of fall back into national assumptions that you're actually very not self-conscious of. Yeah. Yeah. Diaspora is a, is a, is a tempting category in the sense that it is on, on face value, it transcends national borders, right? And this sort of, um, sort of irreverent in that way, transgressive, but you know, I think the history of diaspora also has, you know, there's a few landmines out there that, that we should be careful about. Um, so, you know, and we're both diasporic, so I think we're both, you know, comfortable with that category. Um, the, so let's move on to a different topic, uh, part of the article. This is something that um, the, the contradictions or the hypocrisy, let's say the contradictions and the hypocrisy in terms of how the Hong Kong protests are being described versus the uh, US protests of the past mm -hmm. month. This is something um, we've talked about on this podcast before. There's a bizarro, there's a way in which it's kind of like the Spider-Man <laughs> meme, right? But uh -huh. yeah, yeah, in yeah, reverse. Uh, and neither position is coherent, <laughs> right? So it's, I don't know how to describe it. But, so what is this contradiction that you kind of raised in the article in terms of how the Chow Collective's attitude towards these protests is like a mirror image of mm -hmm. US, a, lo a lot of US commentators? Yeah, yeah, so Chow has been uh, claiming that the Hong Kong protests are backed by the CIA and that they've received CIA training and funding. That's why they're able to purchase things like gas masks and, and uh, safety helmets and, and riot equipment and that kind of thing or why they're even able to take on protest tactics like building walls or tearing up bricks or whatever. And this seems like, you know, it's a very uh, contorted explanation for a rather simple thing, which is just that people learn how to do this and decide to buy this stuff on their own. And it's an organic expression of outrage. And by contrast, then, uh, American Republicans have sometimes pointed to Black Lives Matter protests in the U.S. and claimed that this is an attempt to, to 
take down the U.S. That is the Chinese plot in some way. Uh, that this is this is a uh, these people could not possibly be doing these things on their own in such an organized way. That this has to be the result of of outside interference. And so it is like the Spider-Man meme of Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man uh, because it is the parallel mirror image. And it's very funny then, very ironic that Tao is so supportive of Black Lives Matter protests in in the U.S. and looks at them as organic expressions of outrage while having this view of the Hong Kong protests and that Republicans then look at what occurs domestically in, in the U.S. as this kind of conspiratorial thing and then will point to what's going on in Hong Kong and claim that, oh, these people are, are freedom fighters fighting against the godless Communist Party of China, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like if you're if you just kind of put yourself in the shoes of the child collective, why would the Minnesota and now, you know, na national protests in the U.S., mm -hmm. why would those be good? from the standpoint of the child collective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think actually it does return to their diaspora position in some sense, um, in that, you know, this is the context of dealing with, they view themselves as part of the left wing and so forth, but then they really want to idealize China from afar. And mm -hmm. so China's actions have to be viewed in a different uh, logic from what's going on in the US. And that includes just looking at the Chinese police as apparently uh, not doing the same things that the US <laughs> police, despite the similarity and just in aid of physical actions. Uh, but also just the institution of the police. And so it's very ironic that you'll have like, I don't know, some of the US calling for uh, the abolition of the police, for example, or abolitionism, and then be so supportive of the police in China. Um, you know, viewing China's outside of the logic of the, the, the same logic does not apply to either both places, the US or China. Um, so it's very ironic in that sense. Yeah, yeah. And so there's obviously a contorted logic there. And on Twitter a few years, a few, few weeks ago, I think the, a lot of the people were dunking on the tweets from uh, the editor of the Global Times, which is sort of the mouthpiece of the Communist Party, who was very delicately, very delicately trying to cheer on the protests in Minnesota without giving legitimacy to the protests in Hong Kong, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the, and the reverse would be like a US Republican, I guess, what's his name? Um, the one who was in the New York Times, uh, Tom Cotton, right? Saying like, these oh, Hong right. Kongers just want their freedom and that's a natural human right. But these Minnesota protesters are, uh, you know, you know, they're, they're, they're a international plot to, and they're Antifa and they're conspirators, right? So they're kind of mirror images of each other, but I think what they have in common is they're both incoherent and, yeah, and yeah. inconsistent. And I guess, you know, the, the kind of boring conclusion is that they kind of chose their, they, they're picking their sides in advance mm -hmm. and they're yeah. letting that kind of direct their, the, the, the direction of their analysis, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it represents idealization of their the nation state to identify with like China mm. or the America that you know you can't nothing bad could actually ever happen here everything bad comes from the outside it's a product of outside interference of foreign interference trying to undermine us and yeah. so this kind of inability to reckon with uh, the fact that both contexts are deeply flawed and have yeah. many issues that's what leads to this kind of thought I think yeah. And whereas the position so the position that you would so what is the way out of that what is the way to respond to that is it to you know as we talked about like there's kind of this it's like a trap. It's like you choose one side, you, you choose the opposite of one side, you actually get stuck in the same logic of the other side. What is the weight out of kind of choosing between Chinese nationalism and U.S. nationalism? Yeah, and I think that's the point is to be critical of all nationalism. I mean, in capitalist society, in, in this kind of world order of capitalist nation states, you know, these, these brutalities are just systematic and deeply written into the system. And mm -hmm. so I think that there's kind of no outside. And I think that that's the thing, just to be critical of all sides and to, to look at I mean, it's called spade a spade, just, you know, when parallel phenomena happen or convergent right, behavior happens between uh, nation states or in the different domestic societies. Uh, you know, it is sometimes returning to the same root cause. It's not that one is different from the other, that one is to be idealized and the other demonized. And that's, yeah. that's this, this binary framing of the world, I think, is very hard to get out of for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know, going back to, I think, the Cold War and this, this, this view of the world, which has persisted 
for many since the Cold War. And I think actually between tankies and Republicans, uh, tankies that are capitalists, you know, seeing that you have to align with like whatever country, socialist country of the world against Western imperialism, or uh, these Republicans that are trying to, you know, so-called spread democracy and mm-hmm. overthrow uh, whatever so-called communist countries, it's actually kind of the same logic. And I think mm-hmm. this kind of uh, binary of the world is, is kind of, this binary logic from the Cold War is very interesting that way. Yeah. So another tactic that gets thrown around, and this is related to it, is this, I've seen this a lot, that um, the Hong Kong movement itself, and I think this is perhaps a very effective argument, for the tankies, they would say that the Hong Kong movement itself is not actually leftist. If you look at the character of the Hong Kong protesters, the stuff they say, the stuff they say about mainlanders, you know, you and I are, you know, you lived in Taiwan, Hong Kong before we know what a lot of people in Taiwan and Hong Kong say about mainlanders, right? Um, uh, basically, you know, like they dress differently, they are poorer than us, they're louder than us, right? All those um sort of stereotypes. So therefore it is a reactionary movement and um, and supporting Hong Kong, like supporting Hong Kong is therefore reactionary. And uh, I guess by extension, the Chinese, the Chinese state is um, the, the one true progressive option here. What do you say to those accusations? Because I think they are, you know, mm-hmm. uh, undeniable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so the question is then, uh, it's interesting because of how that, that argument that conflates, uh, I think, several different things. For example, the Hong Kong protests, would not, I would not view them as explicit at that point. They're about this kind of demand for sovereignty or for preservation of democratic freedoms. Uh, but then for the Tiao Collective or a group similar to the Tiao Collective, they will frame this as they're just being racist towards Chinese, that they, they just seek to defend the capitalist order. Um, or they will claim, you know, they'll make demigrations against the Hong Kong people themselves, uh, that they are all bourgeoisie or they're just, uh, you know, trying to resist the whatever working class China. Um, and it's one of those things that it then completes a lot of things. Uh, China, uh, Hong Kong is viewed in monolithic terms, for example, without recognition that there's many different elements of the movement, some which are more left-leaning, some more right-leaning, uh, some which are more bourgeoisie, and some which are more uh, working class. And just then says, oh, they're, well, they're just all, they're just all bourgeoisie because they're opposing China. They're all right-wing because of that. And yeah. so in a movement, in this movement, particularly uh, it does concern sovereignty and issues regarding democracy. Um, you know, this kind of notion, this question of like who is left out of the the, the imagined community comes up frequently. Uh, that that the, the salient question is is regarding Chinese people, um, yeah. and then the, as a result, you do have xenophobic elements of the movement, as well as elements of the movement that are more inclusionary on various notions, various conceptions of of what the Hong Kong imagined community is. Yeah. And so the, then having all these different elements of the movement, uh, the fact that this movement is is not internationalist uh, is, is, is as, as much as we would hope for it to, for it to be, or as inclusive as we would hope for it to be. Um, it, it, is, it is actually something that's worth critiquing, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But then at the same time, Tao will be like, oh, well, you know, it's not, it doesn't do these things. And so therefore it should be condemned. And that's kind of one logic, which I think is flawed, just that this, because this movement is not perfect, claiming that it is a right-wing movement. And then Tiao does the further move of just saying that, well, because it's critical of the, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, which we idealize, Therefore, it is a right-wing movement, and so right. I think it's it's one of those those that, that's a problematic. Um, yeah, I mean, just then then it comes this the kind of rogue combination of the movement, and even with regards to Black Lives Matter, it's just because like any protest, there are mixed elements there. Um, you know, I'm sure you can find a right-wing person that actually is supporting the movement in some sense. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's you know, it's it's no movement can be, be viewed in monolithic terms. Um, yeah. Yeah. In your, I mean, in your experience, I know you've been a little bit on the ground in Hong Kong. You, you know, I saw you took a few mm-hmm. trips last year and you obviously were involved in the Sunflower Movement in 2014. Mm-hmm. Do you find that as these protests go on, um, 
do does that actually radicalize people and does bring out the uh, I don't know you know they're not necessarily like suddenly like members of the DSA but it does kind of it does kind of I mean I, I guess the one fear would be it could actually reinforce their xenophobic ideas about mainland China mm-hmm. but on the other hand do you think through the process of protesting and kind of seeing what the police are doing does it actually actually um, bring about kind of a more progressive and um, systematic analysis on the part of the participants, right? They're not just like, um, you know. Yeah, it's like, one of those things, yeah. Because um, I think the protests have potential to push people towards the political left uh, in many ways. Just for example, showing to them that the, the institution of the state or of, uh, of uh, the police as an institution will actually engage in this kind of violence against them, that, you know, the relying on this kind of government or this, for reform is not going to work. Yeah. Um, and I think also particularly now during the Trump administration that Trump has kind of made it clear on several points at several times that he would use Hong Kong as a bargaining agent against China. This is actually very disillusioned about this idealization of the West, which you see in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Um, yeah. I think a lot of countries in the world actually just, there are many people that just idealize the West as this kind of bastion of democracy and human rights, which is, it isn't. Um, right. And this is, this, this is actually where intervening in the protest is one way to actually kind of clarify these uh, mystifications. Um, yeah. this kind of misleading view of the world. And so I think that demands engagement rather than just condemnation. Yeah. And I think that in, in terms of protests, I mean, you do actually see Chinese people once in a while that are around despite sometimes receiving hostility from other people um, in the protests or just willing to participate in the protests. And sometimes Main, that has mainland participants in the Hong Kong Yes, protests. that's right. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's actually like an old lady that is just going across from Shenzhen to Hong Kong mm-hmm. towards that. And like, that's been the news. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it actually changes the views of everybody, but it does for some people. And I think that demands engagement. And so I think pushing for internationalism uh, requires that, you know, just kind of trying to yeah. interrogate where the, the limits of the movement are and where, where it actually is not inclusive enough. I mean, for example, the movement has also promoted conversations about uh, minority groups in Hong Kong, for example, people that are Southeast Asian, mm-hmm. because there are people that are Southeast Asian participating in the movement. And historically, they have faced discrimination. And there are people yeah. in the movement that, that say, well, we're taking the same risks as you. So you should take steps to be more inclusive towards us, uh, such as, you know, making uh, materials available in English or or a language that they understand and and so forth and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a lot of migration of uh, Filipino, Filipina, Indonesian. Where where else um, are there sort of um, migrant labor into Taiwan and Hong Kong? Where else are they coming from? Um, yeah, for Taiwan, which I know much more about, it's, uh, you know, Vietnam, uh, Thailand, the Philippines, Indonesia. Um, And Hong Kong has a kind of history of this, I think going back to British colonialism. I mean, a lot of the kind of ethnic groups present in Hong Kong, uh, you know, it is is groups that were part of the, have ties to the British Empire and so forth. So actually it's interesting that, um, you know, Tao will actually kind of not actually uh, focus on this element either. For them, a lot of tankies, it actually gets framed in a very Han-centric, Han-Chinese framework. For sure. Yeah, so I think this this bridges us to probably our final topic, which is, you know, uh, this might be a stretch, but like how, how could we find some common ground with the Chow Collective? But more generally, um, and before we get there, one thing I want to mention is I think it's important. I don't want to gloss this over, but I think for time reasons, we will probably have to, is that a lot of the Tanki position is founded upon a sort of romantic idealization and Orientalism. And not to you know be a snob about this, but like I, I question how much about China they actually know or study. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you just, you know, just like read, read some books, you know, read, read, read some multiple perspectives before you make your final judgment. Don't just take your judgments mm-hmm. from people who you already, um, you know, who you think you agree with in advance. Um, and I think the other kind of point of that is I think the twist with the Chow Collective is 
I think you're saying a sort of counterintuitive thing that um, perhaps the Chinese diaspora, and we're taking for granted that the Chow Collective is real, and these are real people, and these are real yeah. Chinese diaspora, which we're not really sure of, right? Yeah, exactly. That these, let's say they're like, like, like us, right? Like they're ABCs or Chinese people who grew up overseas. Um, that they could be just as, if not more, Orientalist than a non-Asian person, right? Mm. That they, yeah. right, and, and perhaps, it's, it perhaps it gets heightened by their own internal search for, um, internal search for some romantic mm. escape route, mm. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, um, yeah, so I don't know if you wanna. Yeah, 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 so I think it's definitely the case, and it's interesting that there, uh, you know, tanky thought does not, this kind of, this notion of tankies does not originate specifically regarding China, but, you know, people, from the Tiao Collective and similar groups have absorbed these ideas and internalized them. Uh, it's a romanticization of a place that you can call like a homeland, a cultural homeland. And so in that yeah. way, I think it is a kind of nationalism, yeah. um, a diasporic nationalism. Yeah. Um, and that's that's actually part of the reason why I, I wanted to write this critique then. You know, again, just Tiao, we don't actually know who they are. Uh, are they actually diaspora? Because of the fact they haven't really made themselves public, I don't really know. And there are actually a lot of videos in which they just, you know, will have a webinar with someone teaching about China. Yeah. And the person is, is not diaspora at all, it's a white person. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't want to, you know, I think once you start leveling accusations about that, you know, yeah. that gets tricky because yeah. they can level it at you. So um, I, take it, I take it at the, uh, you know, I just try to take it as at the word then. And so in that right. sense, I think it's worth engaging them on. Right. Um, and so that's, that's the question for me then. It's that, um, why has there been a romanticization of China? I think it's a kind of frame, uh, inability to think out beyond the nation state and just kind of attempt to kind of yeah. create a pure nation state that, that is, is uh, you can kind of cling to. But yeah. actually maybe then in the point of common ground, I think maybe regarding you know, US domestic things, I mean, probably I don't actually disagree with Tao regarding uh, yeah. place brutality and things like that, or that right. I think US imperialism is bad. Right. <laughs> um, right, and right, so right. that's actually the thing, actually. I think that a lot of it is, is and this is particularly my worry, is that young people becoming politicized uh, they jump to this kind of mm -hmm. idealization of China because they haven't thought beyond the nation state yet. Uh, they talk about international, but they actually still conceive the world in these kind of narrow uh, nationalist terms. And so I think that's, that's kind of my worry that people will just jump to this kind of idealization because they haven't thought about outside of these kind of deeply interrogated assumptions. They just try to reverse them. Um, yeah. So what's interesting is that, yeah, Xiao actually in many sense, it just sounds like liberal internationalist uh, kind of apology for China transposing mm -hmm. liberal internationalist apology for the U.S. to China in some sense. Yeah. And so you just kind of reverse your, what you're trying to oppose, but you actually deeply internalize it in some way. And so I think this is why I thought there was a point of critique. Um, right. This is why I think that just, you know, this is worth engaging with them on. Um, yeah. Because I don't, because I think that maybe when it comes to domestic things, maybe there's not a lot of disagreement, or I think that actually people, when they can be pushed regarding these assumptions, uh, they can maybe change. I think mm -hmm. that even for myself, in terms of my own experience, like my parents are like all KMT, and so they're pretty right wing, and they always had this, you know, this fictional notion of China that they had in their heads that it's this paradise and that it's mm -hmm. so important that, uh, you know, as people that came from, you know, came from China, in terms of my like my grandparents to Taiwan, uh, they had this kind of fixation on on China, and I just eventually, you know, once I became an adult and I went to China, I just was like, well, this does not correspond to what my parents <laughs> have told me, and I'm always just like, you know, well, I've actually been to China, and you know, you haven't actually. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. It, it's it's one of those things that I can actually I feel like I kind of see where they're coming from in some sense. And I think for I myself when I was younger, I kind of had this period of idealizing China as a kind of you know left with leftist country or you know offering something for the left internationally to learn. And I think this was actually just kind of a form of nationalism or diasporic nationalism that I hadn't yeah. actually really gotten beyond. And sometimes it came from my parents, or sometimes it just came from searching for identity 
you know, sometimes what was a hostile political environment. And so, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that is, I think that's relatable. I think that's a good thing to emphasize that their position is not, um, they're, we don't, again, we're not here to dunk on them or demonize them. It is to say, I think it's important to kind of point out that there are perhaps points of common agreement that there is a temptation, you know, like, like you said, I think a lot of this comes from a basic critique of United States foreign policy, which I completely am okay with, mm-hmm. a criticism of uh, just, just that the sense that something is wrong with the U.S., wrong right. with Euro-America, and you hope for there's some sort of romantic idealis- uh, romantic sort of opposite out there. Mm-hmm. And, and, for, and for diaspora, it is, I think uh, there is a sense of, you know, uh, maybe there's some place out there that's better and that would actually make me feel like whole again or something, you know, something romantic. Mm-hmm. And um, so we don't want to, you know, just kind of laugh at these people and kind of, I don't, I don't, I personally do not want to necessarily mm-hmm. reinforce yeah, the yeah. antagonisms. Um, now, obviously mm-hmm. there's going to be some people who are just, for whatever reason, it could be personal. It could be, it could be, you know, maybe they're like funded by someone who knows, but like they're, they're just like beyond, beyond being reached. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think if you had your way, well, hmm. between like utopia where you can completely change the world or just kind of um, being doing something much more idealistic than what is possible today, hmm. I wouldn't say, I, well, would you want to cut off ties between like Taiwan and the mainland and the mainland and Hong Kong? And would you want to sort of isolate these? Or like, what is the attitude you have between, uh, you, would, you would want between people who live in Taiwan and people who live in mainland China? Well, I think, uh, you know, particularly for me, I would view it as, um, you know, Taiwan has this kind of problematic, which is that a lot of people on the left is viewed as Foxconn, and they view Taiwan mm-hmm. as reducible to like Foxconn, and that mm-hmm. Taiwan is capital. And this is a very old notion, going back to when Foxconn was big, and Taiwan's economy was actually larger than China's, but people have mm-hmm. not advanced beyond this notion. And so Taiwan gets stereotyped as a right-wing country. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you think about someone, let's say, like Terry Goh, the owner of Foxconn, right. who makes everyone's iPhones, or, you know, is, is lording over the factories that make the iPhones anyway. Um, then he's actually the shared enemy of the, the Taiwanese and the Chinese working class, actually. And he's right. someone that's pro-education uh, because of the fact that this is just a, China's bitter market. He wants to exploit China as a, a, a labor market to use while having the kind of, uh, the, while being able to save in Taiwan and have the greater political freedoms there. And so someone like that is actually the shared enemy. And that's something, something like the CCP is the shared enemy, I think, of the Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Taiwan working classes. And yeah. so that's the thing I would want to push for, this kind of internationalism. Um, and so I would actually hope for push for engagement between, um, you know, uh, people from t- the working classes of, of China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Right. Um, and, you know, that's not actually just a call for them to meld into one kind of amorphous Chinese, uh, uh, what would probably be some kind of ethno state, really. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But just you know, to have unity along these grounds. And so it's, yeah. it's one of those things I push for engagement. And so, yeah. you know, yeah. And so it's, it's one of those things for me that I'm just like, when I deal with groups, tanky groups as a self collective, I'm just like, like, well, you know, I don't think of myself as Chinese. Uh, I don't advocate unification with China, but I write on Chinese social movements and protests in a sympathetic lens. And you do not, you know, like these are people outside of the state. And right. so it's very ironic then. Um, and that's the one thing that actually is actually pretty frustrating with in, engaging with them. And that's, that's one of the issues that I, I hope to push them on. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. my sense, you know, talking to you, I think about it for myself. I wrote, you know, one article about it, but that kind of forced me to kind of, kind of take a stand in my own mind. But you just like reading, people online that I admire and appreciate who come from mainland, who come from Hong Kong, who come from Taiwan, that I think this gets lost. Like all of us want some sort of 
better communication solidarity amongst the sort of common everyday person in mainland China, Taiwan, whatever other border, right? And the the criticism is really about the state. So just to go back to this earlier example of um, the people in Hong Kong who constantly refer to and the famous anecdote is that in Hong Kong they've begun to refer to mainlanders as cockroaches, right? And then in, and in Taiwan, there's a stereotype that these mainland tourists are coming in and they're like polluting our country. And if, you know, those people might be beyond reach to certain to a certain degree. But I also I think I have the idealist hope, and it sounds like you do too, that if those Taiwanese people actually like went to China and like made friends with people in mainland China and vice versa, like a lot of that stuff could go away. Right. Yeah, it's one of those things. Yeah. And so creating uh, platforms for dialogue or opportunities for dialogue, I think is important. And actually, particularly because of the fact that China is not a safe political environment, having this occur among the diaspora or outside of China is actually making the space to have it. But yeah. then, you know, it's, it has become very difficult when you're dealing with tankies or people that idealize sure. China or just, you know, Taiwanese or Hong Kong nationalists then on the flip side. And so that's, that's kind of one of the issues, actually, in that sense. Um, yeah. And also that maybe going back to the NTL, I mean, it's interesting that they do demonize uh, Hong Kongers and Taiwanese in this monolithic way. And that's actually just the inverse of, of the kind of Taiwanese or Hong Kong person demonizing Chinese people in some way. Yeah. Like just, you know, Tao yeah, exactly. claimed that, yeah, yeah, that these are all like bourgeoisie and like their people descended as a, you know, as a class somehow transmits down from generation to generation to generation. Um, you know, and it, it actually will actually look at them as, as, as parasites in that way. It's just trying to inverse this kind of uh, discourse, but it's actually also internalized in the same way. Yeah, yeah that's sure. one of those things actually, yeah. They see themselves on playing on opposite teams, but they're both playing the same game. And yeah, exactly. right, the critique is of the game itself. And yeah, I think uh, that's, that's, you know, I, I think that gets lost. Like a, a lot of this defensiveness about defending China as, as the socialist project. Uh, I think you put it pretty well at the end of your article that your criticism is not so much, you know, you're not critical of mainland Chinese people. You're critical of the, uh, I don't know if conflation is the right word, but the sort yeah. of, um, channeling all of one's political sentiments towards upwards towards the government and the state mm-hmm. right rather yeah, than, or just, than the people yeah. itself yeah or the identification of the chinese people of the state and yeah. that's i think that's also the thing about nationalism that people that are nationalists identify with their own state you know yeah so that's that's one of those things actually and Xiao is not thought outside of this identification actually that's why you know there are chinese identification leads to this very strong identification of the Chinese state. And so yeah. I think that's, that's one of the things I'm trying to push. Yeah, and I, I do think, just to go back to our earlier conversation about diaspora, this is something, I've had conversations with people about that. You know, diaspora might have be inherently nationalist in some degree, but in the current environment, it does have a certain usefulness, right? That in the United States, you could have someone from the mainland, Taiwan or Hong Kong, have a normal conversation in a coffee shop mm-hmm. and not worry about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people around them, you know, you know, snitching on them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, and that, and I think there's, there's historical precedence for this too. This is, you know, we know we all know about you know Father for Nation, Sun Yat-sen spending most of his life outside <laughs> of China, right? Uh-huh. Uh, um, and tapping into those groups. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that most overseas Chinese groups are probably pretty rich, elite, you know, privileged mm-hmm. people, and they're certainly not representative of the majority of people who live in mm-hmm. in Asia. Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's you know there's possibilities and there's limits. Yeah, it's very interesting that way. I mean, it, it illustrates how diaspora has become a politically contentious category, I think, in this kind of present moment. Yeah. Do you, um, the other the other Twitter account we should probably name drop is Dao Collective, D-I-A-O, which is, a, which is you know, it rhymes with Chow and Dao, if you can, you can Google what it means, uh, but uh, it's, a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty funny account as well. Um, 
you can answer this. You can answer this. You know, you can say you don't want to answer this at all. But just, I was, I was wondering if you think that the Chow Collective or any of these people are backed by um, anyone's moneyed interests. It's a good question, and I think nobody. I don't. I don't really know. Um, I think that when this, you know, because I've done research on like fake news and disinformation, this kind of thing, it's very hard to actually ever have a smoking gun. Um, I think that you know, there's there's multiple possibilities for them. But one is that they aren't, and that there actually just are uh, that many tankies out there that are are becoming politicized in this direction. I think that's kind of how I took it in the article, just uh, yeah. taking them at face value, engaging good faith in that way. Right. Uh, it's also possible that they are backed by the state and that's that explains why they've grown so fast in terms of their followers and so forth there's a possibility that the state is just seeing a group that they can actually just kind of co-opt or back or make it yep. here have stronger backing than it has and so it's been a kind of a conflation of interests or conflicts yeah. of interests uh but it's just very hard to say yeah. um and it's it's actually i think that the chinese state probably has stepped up efforts to uh build soft power among the diaspora um, mm. in in the time of u.s china tensions and actually among tankies, among the political left. I mean, it does the Chinese government does create a report on sectarian groups in the U.S. annually. Um, <laughs> That's right. And, and it's actually, it's, it's interesting that way. Um, and so, you know, the, the government is looking for groups that it can co-opt uh, for soft power purposes and so yeah. forth. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think that what's interesting is that the discourse of, of uh, Tiao does not necessarily align with Chinese nationalists themselves, what they right. are saying. Um, you know, maybe it's on similar grounds, but like articulate in a different framework. And right. so that's 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 kind of unusual, yeah. Um, but yeah, they do. I mean, they certainly do retweet a lot of Chinese state media, which is is, is telling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. To me, I think it kind of you know, there's a, there's always these traps involved when you start accusing people of being backed by interests. This kind of goes back to like the whole RussiaGate that we in the U.S. Yeah, have yeah. fucking suffer through for four years. Where there's several problems with that. On the one hand, if you accuse someone, the people who are accusing the conspiracy are often are often doing it because they do not want to engage with the substance itself. They just want to live in denial that Donald Trump got elected president, right? And deal with their own yeah. problems. And even if those accusations are true, that Russia's behind it or the Chinese government's behind it, that doesn't actually explain the appeal mm -hmm. of the argument, right? You still, there's still a substantive debate to be yeah. had about, you know, this could be a completely poisonous ideology, but it might still have some appeal to people who, because if it is backed by money, not everyone sees that money, right? There are just like yeah, innocent absolutely. bystanders who just get caught up mm -hmm. in this, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like to, maybe that's a good place to end. I think one, again, one of the, one of the merits of your writing and, and the article is that you, you engage in the substance. You're not preaching. You know, we, we, I guess we've learned you have some ideals that go beyond the party system in, in Taiwan, but you don't get the sense from that from your articles. You're quite, um, you're, yeah, you're, you're kind clear, of you're, Yeah, exactly. You're a clear writer. You're not preachy, and uh, I think that that is a uh, is a uh, those are all um, positives. So for for so for the listeners interested, um, you know, check out the article. We'll put a link to it, and uh, check out New Bloom. So Brian, thanks a lot for talking to us. Thanks for having me. It's fun talking. <laughs>